Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, how are things in Seattle right now? Um, I would say kind of all over the place. Uh, they just shut down restaurants again for indoor dining. Doesn't necessarily affect us too much because um, we're mm-hmm. we weren't doing that anyway. <laughs> But, um, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's kind of like in a little panic mode. Yeah, everybody's kind of in like a little panic mode here, the people that were doing it. And, you know, numbers are rising and things are going back to, you know, beyond levels we were before in March when they shut everything down. So it's a lot more serious now. Right, right. And I mean, we're going to get into this, but also, can you tell me what inspired, how did you decide never to open dining um, during the pandemic? Um, it's, it was pretty simple. I mean, it was, it's a virus that feeds off of people moving together and hanging out, um, on the most basic level. Um, and, and it doesn't matter who you are or what performative safety things you want to do, a $25 thermometer, you know, UV lights or any of that other stuff is just pretty much good at that point. So, um, you know, this is something pretty serious and I didn't want to, have to open and close and open and close and open and close over again. Um, I, Cause I can't afford that. <laughs> so I just basically right. said, we're going to have to be extreme. If, if this virus is, ex- is as extreme as it is, then it's going to take me being extreme as well. Right, right, right. And so, you know, to get back to the normal course of the interview, how can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in, um, Washington state. I, I, my dad was military. They're both from Puerto Rico, both my parents, and they moved over here um, cause he got stationed. And then I was born here um, in uh, Fort Lewis and then grew up in Olympia, which is about 45 minutes South of there. Um, and it's like very secluded, <laughs> like suburban style life. Um, there was no like Puerto Rican anything. So other than my parents. Um, so it was very different. Um, yeah, and just pretty much over here for a while and then started moving around a little bit later in life uh, again because my dad was military, so. Right, and and were you eating Puerto Rican food mostly at home? How was your – and outside of the house, it was totally different? Yeah, that was the only option. I mean, we – it was at my parents' house. My grandparents had moved from Puerto Rico um, to kind of help raise us until we were about – until I was about seven. Um so it was always Puerto Rican food from them. And then everything else on the outside was like new discovery land for all of us. <laughs> so it was a matter of, you know, early on, early on, like taking, you know, Puerto Rican food to lunch, to school, getting laughed at, getting made fun of, um, and then assimilating towards white culture <laughs> um, and taking Lunchables and stuff like that. And it was very, it was very different. Right. And I know you've kind of given this story before, but how did you end up having your restaurant and being a chef? Yeah, I, I'd pursued other things before. Um, so I was in mortgage insurance, financial services when I was younger. Um, and then that whole thing blew up and I got forced out. So, um, with the recession. And so then I said, Hey, I'm going to pursue something, even if worst comes to worst, at least I can like make myself some food. <laughs> So I started, you know, tinkering around in kitchens and kind of doing that whole thing and 
was doing like a food blog and finally hit a point where I'm like, this doesn't work for me. I need it to actually be something real. So I pursued it as being a professional cook. Um, Did that for a while, worked in some cool places, and then finally got to the point where I was like, I'm tired of everybody telling me how this industry should be. I'm going to do it for myself (laughs) now. So um, I started it off in my apartment. It was two seats at a time, tasting menus, um, literally in my apartment. And people didn't know anything other than that. Um, they just come over and they were like dressed all fancy and they're like, Oh shit, this is just your apartment. I'm like, yeah. So (laughs) it kind of started growing from there. Um, I did pop up around the city, like any little opportunity to just get myself out there. I was taking, I was like, you know, working 80 to a hundred hours a week, just trying to hustle, (laughs) um, which I still do now anyway, but, um, which is different. Um, you know, and, and I approached everything very differently. Um, I couldn't get a loan. I couldn't get any investors. I couldn't get anything. So, you know, for me, it was trying to figure out how to make it happen for myself. Right. And how did you do that? I'm, were you, you know, being an independent restaurant in a, in the truest sense of it's you that are kind of, you have the stake in the whole thing. So how, how has that um, made your restaurant different from other restaurants, even before the pandemic? Yeah, I, I felt like there was all these like gatekeepers um, and established brands of restaurants. And those were all the people that were getting all the attention and it was easy for them to get the attention. Um, you know, whether they have fancy PR, or they're just known people that have been here for a long time. Um, I realized I didn't have that time to kind of fuss and I didn't have the money uh, to put it up front. So I had to figure out a different way. So it was basically creating, it was <laughs> creating a brand for myself. Um, and right. going around everybody, <laughs> um, you know, redirecting how things happen, how the communication goes out, how people see things. And a lot of that was more, you know, using modern technology to kind of help me do that. Um, and pretty much just like forcing that on on the system. And, and it worked. Um, you know, started having people going like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Where did he come from? Um, and, and I think people, as they started to like try the food, they were like, okay, cool. It's not like perfect. It's not amazing or whatever, but it's, it's different for sure. So, um, there's a lot of people that have hung out with me, you know, along the way and been really supportive. So it's been really cool. Um, but it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been fun a lot of times, but it's just been real. And it's been real, um, of not having a lot of things that other people are afforded. And I'm cool with that. Right, right. And I just watched um, your kind of segment on Eater's Guide to the World. And, you know, I, because I've never been to your restaurant and because I think I've mostly mm-hmm. kind of seen what you've been doing post-pandemic happening, um, you know, it was really interesting to get that glimpse at at what it actually was before all of this. And so did you view your role as a chef and a restaurant owner differently before the pandemic um, as you do now, how, how have you, yeah. um, how has the idea of what a chef is evolved in your brain, if at all? Yeah, it's, it was very different because the point of view was get people here. <laughs> and then once they're here, show yeah. them what you can do and then interact with them, you know, all over. So for me, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, and having a tasting menu and having a chef's counter, all that shit sounds fancy because it was. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff we were doing at the time that was, you know, lower spectrum, lower price point stuff that was just 
get people through the door. Um, but now it's very different because um, you're almost like flying blind every day. Um, there's things that people want that I've figured out it wouldn't have existed before the pandemic. So it's made me more of a kind of jump into their house, figure out what's going on with them, kind of understand and talk to them and go like, what do you want? (laughs) You know, and basically what I've positioned myself as is being their personal chef. So, um, and that's kind of like the, the relationship I have now, rather than imposing like what we do here, it's the other way around now. It's going like, what do you need? (laughs) Which is cool. Right. Yeah, no, and I I noticed on your Instagram one day I think you even just like fried someone's potatoes for them. Like Yeah. <laughs> how how does how do <laughs> So how has your relationship to customers changed in this time? Is it more of an intimate actual like relationship or Yeah, it it, it definitely is. There's more communication than there was before um because people would tell me things when they were here. Right. Um now it's they're on Instagram or they text me or they email me and they're like, Hey, do you have this? I'm out of that. Um, I can't find this, you know, type of flower. I can't find it. And yeah. I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, I got, it. that's, that's no, that's easy. I don't know why you're like going to 20 different places. Just email me, you know? Um, so essentially like, I'm like right. sometimes a concierge service <laughs> for food and, and I'm cool with that. You know, it's, it's like, I'm trying to do as much as I can um, within running a business, within keeping the staff, employed within you know it's a lot of more it's a lot more variables um than it was before but i you know it's i've had you know other people go catch like crab or fish or whatever and they're like hey do you want one if i give you one can you do this to it and i'm like yeah it's it's easy you know it's it's not a big deal it's not a big deal to me like that's what i always wanted it to be you know so it's not like it's stopping me from doing something else that's not as important or more important um i'm like fuck yeah, bring it on, <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll fry your potatoes. I have a fryer, it just sits there, you know, so it's more of a, it's a, it's kind of a cool, like little service, you know, but it's like the guy comes in, gives me a potato. I make it fries for him. He goes home and makes poutine out of it. I mean, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, like, That's easy. You know, probably would have taken him like an hour and it took me like 10 minutes. So it's, it's, it's cool. And, and, and as long as they're cool about it, you know, the guests and they're appreciative and that's all I care about. Yeah, no, it's so interesting and it's so against what you're supposed to or or what we've been trained to believe that the chef is, which is so it's really fascinating to watch this from afar and and see like, yeah, a chef who would usually be doing a counter a chef's table counter service be just frying (laughs) potatoes like it's really it's really wild and it's really awesome to see that. Um, And, you know, have you found, because you mentioned before, like not being able to afford, you know, the, mm-hmm. the big PR firm or anything like that, but also not being in New York, not being in, you know, what's considered sort of a major culinary yeah. center um, in the U.S., you know, how do you think that has affected, you know, your restaurant? Do, do you, how do you see those things and the, the way that food media prioritizes those things, whether it's a big PR firm or whether it's, you know, being in New York or Chicago, like how have, how has that affected you and and how do you see it? Um, It's it's definitely affected. It's, it's been really hard um, to get to kind of this point um, of people actually realizing kind of what we're doing. Um, You know, been fortunate with eaters been dope, you know, Thrillist, infatuation, like everybody's been amazing. Seattle Met, Seattle Magazine, 
the interview's gonna be really cool, but it doesn't. It's really hard to transition what I'm doing to guests because they're like, I don't know what he did, or hey, I found out what he what he did over there, and then he changed it. And you know, I was talking to somebody the other day. It's like over this pandemic, we've done over 600 variables of offerings that we have, like experiences um, since March. <laughs> so I, you know. Someone going, I had somebody the other day go, hey, you know that one hot sauce you made back in July? Like, I ran out. It's our favorite hot sauce ever. Can you make it again? I'm like, well, no. Um, and they're like, well, why not? And I'm like, that was like a two-month process, and it was specifically with one farmer's tomatillos. And, you know, like, that, that's it. Like, I don't I don't have anything else. Like, I wish I could have made, like, a thousand bottles of it, but that's just not, that's not what we do. So. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very different thing because then, you know, places in New York or the hubs, you're looking for important people always. And there's always that upper tier, you know, that I'm always like talking shit to, um, <laughs> you know, the John George, Danny Myers and whatever, the people that make it easy um, for like New York Times or whoever to like talk to because they just know them and they get fucking free food from it. Um you know, that's really easy. But then I'm over here in Seattle. It's a small market. Um, and then trying to, I don't I wouldn't say necessarily make an impact, but just show people like, look, there's other options in the middle of a pandemic that doesn't involve, you know, eliminating 800 employees and then asking the government for a bunch of money. Um, it, that's just crazy to me. So it's, it's me trying to show people. And, and I'm, I've been fortunate with enough talking shit online that <laughs> real writers and people who are in the press have actually reached out to me. They're like, okay, I'm going to filter this a little bit, but like, tell me what you have to say. <laughs> and, and that's like, that's been pretty cool. Um, because it's just, for me, it's come from anger of three ish years of we've been doing this since day one, you know, and it's, it's nothing new for us. It's just right. showing people that there's a different way to restaurant. It's not all the same thing. You know, I don't feel bad for, a cheesecake factory down the street having to close for indoor dining fuck them you know they're gonna be fine i don't feel bad for mm-hmm. danny meyer whoever these fucking guys are um you know that have all the access and stuff and i just saw like jean george yesterday look at his like brand new outdoor indoor dining thing and it's fancy as fuck man like it's really expensive to do that and and, and then still fueling just bringing people in and i'm like how and why is that okay but that's just how it is. You know, that guy's going to end up probably on Forbes tomorrow about his indoor dining thing. And, you know, and that's easy. And, that, you know, you kind of like have to fight against that because that's where the beacon shoots. That's the spotlight towards it. You know, there's not, I was talking to Davida um, Davidson. She was saying, you know, the crazy part about a lot of restaurants in Detroit is that none of, almost none of them had to like really pivot, like that were owned by, you know, black people or, you know, indigenous people or anything else like because she was like they weren't trying to serve expensive food they weren't going to do this like highfalutin right, shit right. so on their side they're like no we're fine like most of the stuff was good in a takeout box like we're not complaining about it you know and and so when you when i look at stuff like that and then i see the other side where it's all these people going to the president and talking to him and being like we need millions and billions of dollars i'm like you guys are full of shit you know <laughs> that's not what everybody needs it's not a catch-all right. type thing it's not a one-size-fits-all it's like you know, we need help, but we don't need the help that, you know, Eric repair needs, you know, we don't, that's crazy. <laughs> and I mean, it is fascinating to see because, you know, I, I did a, a 
a panel mm-hmm. for Food Lab Detroit, which is is run by Davida Davison. And I was on the panel with a couple of restaurateurs from that area, um, yeah. women. Of, of, yeah. I'm going to say, of course, but you know. Um, and but and there was a, a woman who is indigenous and had a restaurant in Detroit that she already like was sourcing from very local farms and and you know selling you know putting that in her food but then now she is right. just selling right. it to people and 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 that that is such yeah. an easy shift to make if you don't have your whole ego tied up in you know a tiny yeah. plate or something you know like and and that seems. Yeah, that seems to be the big difference, you know, is because I've seen, you know, my favorite chefs in New York are Mm -hmm. people like Brooks Headley or Amanda Cohen, who have, you know, just done their best and and probably been pissing people off in in the, you know, for not being open in the way that they believe that restaurants should be open despite you know all the science that we know um and so it's it's really fascinating to watch that the most like famous and you know lauded chefs have been the ones who cannot function during this time and i know obviously you've been extremely outspoken about this and how stupid it is and you know and how you know you don't necessarily need a response from the government but would you like to see a response maybe yep. when we have a new I, um, new people in the White House? Yeah, but what I, do you I don't, want it to what look I, like? I don't want it to look like the way they want it to look like. Um, and I, don't, I don't need it right. to be that way. I mean, <laughs> the biggest part was taking care of employees. It's something that all these restaurants that got that far, you know, they got there with unpaid stages and paying people like shit just so they can have their big, you know, caviar menus and all this other stuff. And, and that's not okay. So, you know, if we're going to help restaurants first, I'd rather have them help out the restaurant employees that have been unsteady the whole time. Um, they're being laid off. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, the David Chang still opening up restaurants all over the place and going on gold belly and shipping out and doing all this stuff. Like they have options, you know, and, and, but the problem is that everybody that's being talked to is those guys, is those people, because they're seen as the beacon or some lobbyist from like National Restaurant Association. And they're just fueling that shit. Um, So it's the, the mouthpiece for it to me, isn't them. It's the restaurant employee. It's all of those people that may never have a job again. And having, you know, things start up like job retraining programs, because there's a lot of people aren't going to be able to work for probably ever again in certain places. So, you know, giving them a shot, you know, giving them a shot to pay their rent or canceling it or doing all those things that actually help the people, not just the ugly arc style, like big name restaurant tour. Um, you know, a lot of the reasons why these guys, it sounds like they're always asking for money is because that's how it is. They don't own their restaurants. They're just there by name. And, and the way that they get funding is all of this investors coming in and it, at most, they own 7 to 10% of that restaurant, you know? And so that's all they're used to is when something goes bad, like a fucking, you know, a toilet explodes or there's a leaking, you know, they're used to calling the investor and going like, hey, we need money. Hey, we need money. Hey, we need money. That's all these guys are used to doing. So when something bad like a pandemic happens, the first thing they do and you see them, you know, the Thomas Keller, I'm going to sue my insurance company. Meanwhile, back corner lays these people off and i'm like well that shit's gonna take like three to seven years i know that because i was formerly in insurance so it's like you know you look at what their priority is and it's always not guided towards the employee and that's a big problem you know and so that's i hope that this next administration looks at it that way because this last administration was basically like business first you know and and it's just not okay it's not what people need you know, a true independent restaurant, 
doesn't have 20 restaurants. <laughs> you know, a true independent restaurant doesn't have restaurants across the country and has licensing deals and isn't flashy like cookbooks and all this shit. That's not it, man. There's entire areas of our state, like within the international district with restaurants that have been around 50, 60, 70 years that still don't get any press <laughs> normally, you know? Um, or you have them be this like lauded thing that they'll never get a James Beard award, but they'll get an American classics pat on the back, you know? So it's like the, the point of view for everything is just, it's, it's so weird um, and it's not right. And it doesn't serve the people that need it the most. Right. And I mean, do you think things like the way that press attention is um, spread, given out and the ways that awards are given out, do you think that these are able to be reformed in order to more accurately reflect who's cooking and, and what people yeah, are Yeah, really I think it, it just needs to be blown up from the ground up. I mean, honestly, it just needs to be because even on the James Beard Awards, the way that they were doing it was you know, they had a bunch of people, they get together, they talk about it, and then there's chefs that are able to vote or restaurateurs that are able to vote, but it's all the same people. <laughs> you know, it's all the same people always. And it's all the same people given, you know, passing the little torch every time. And, and that's watered down white bullshit. You know, the majority of people that are winning it and, and you start to look at things, you know, and I've said this a million times, but you know, when you have a Rick Bayless, it's one more, awards for Mexican food than actual Mexicans. You have, um, you know, a Sean Brock who's won more uh, awards for Southern food than black people. That's fucking insane. That's fucking insane. So it's like, why are, yeah. why are the people who are voting for these things so scared? Are they scared of black people? Do they not know how to talk to Latin American people? Do they know how to go and understand what indigenous food is? Are they scared of, you know, Japanese people? Are they scared? <laughs> you know, like what's the deal? And a lot of it comes down to, it's not representative of the people who are is judging it. Um, so they're not going out there. They're not doing the things. So yeah. if you're going to do it, you got to blow it up, you know, and that's kind of my thing. Um, otherwise it just won't be respected and it won't be, you know, it won't affect the right people. Um, you know, even, even with um, writers, you know, I just saw the thing from LA times and how, um, right. you know, they had co people and, and, and it was all bullshit, you know? <laughs> and it, and you look at it and go, well, why would you do that? Why would you position both people as being co-critics and then say, well, this other person won a James Beard award and that makes it all better when it doesn't, you know? So it clearly like when you start to look at it, as a systematic problem, you can clearly see that if someone's going to say like, well, this person won a James Beard award, so they're better than this other person. That's all bullshit, you know? Um, and it doesn't really work into the factor of understanding who that person is that they hired, <laughs> you know, for them, they're just like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Look at my shiny, you know, Rolls Royce and cool. And you're like, yeah, but it has an oil leak and it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's wild, and it's it's funny that you say like, do these people not know how to talk to black people, the people who are judging? Because I remember doing an interview, and at, for like, it was at Time Inc. It was like for branded content. I don't know. It was like a contract thing, and I went to this interview, and the dude asked me, like, he asked me about my ethnic background, which you're not is like illegal. It's illegal to do that. But he like he asked me about my ethnic background because he wanted someone to be able to like talk to the people at like. I don't know, like people in Espanol and like um, some other magazine, like focus more toward people of color. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, but it is, but this is yeah. how media is. It's, it's really, and if it's not, if it's, if it's not racist, it's, it's um, classist right. all the time. And so, yeah, it, it, these, this is how the, the sausage gets made and exactly why it needs to be blown up. 
Um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> I mean, but do you think even mm-hmm. pandemic aside in the current situation, like what reforms do you think need to happen in the rest in the restaurant world to kind of make it viable, make it a uh, not necessarily even the restaurant world, but just politically, economically, like what has to happen for running a restaurant as an independent person? Um, what what, what um, is I think needed? Just the biggest part is, you know, who's who. Um, and more transparency in that, you know, so when there's stories written about, you know, the bigger name chefs and, you know, essentially like I target them because they're like the 1% in (laughs) normal world. Right. And, and I'm like, wait, why are we checking in with those people? Why are we talking to them? That's like talking to like, you know, when someone writes a story about like Amazon and they had a bad day in the stock market and they're like, Oh, Jeff Bezos lost like $500 million today. And I'm like, what, why does anybody give a shit? Why does anybody give a shit? Like he's worth over a hundred billion dollars. I don't give a fuck. Fuck them. You know, I mean, I, I appreciate like what he's done to a certain degree, but goddamn to a certain point, like how much more fucking money do you need? You know, and, and, and you're stopping the process and it's, it's always that trickle down Reagan style economic mindset and it doesn't work. You know, and it's proven that it doesn't work over and over again. Meanwhile, you have a, tons of other people that are sick, dying, you know, and that's the same way in the restaurant world. So, you know, when you have all these vaunted brands that everybody knows just by three little letters like TFL and JGV and all this shit, um, you know, people know who they are and they check into them and they're the first ones that, go and it's not what that is like i want to see like pop-up culture i want to see like you know not just hey we have 10 chefs here and we checked off the list and we made sure to have like six of them be black that's bullshit you know (laughs) you've got to do the due diligence make sure everybody's cool but then also be aware and get other people who know what the fucking food is not just white people you know so it's it has to create a different point of view it has to be different it has to be blown up you know, otherwise you're going to run into the same problems. You have these legacy people that have been around forever, 25, 30, 40, fucking 40 years, and they're not being held accountable. You know, they're not being held accountable at all. And, and, and that's from the industry on, even on the outside, you know, and we've seen that. Um, I think it was the guy from James Beard that stepped down and he'd been there for 20 years. Like that's a good right. first step. And I think he realized like, Hey, even if I did something bad or not, <laughs> I, I realized that I just maybe need to get out of the way now. And I think that's what a lot of things that need to happen. There's a lot of people that just need to get out of the way. Um, they've made enough. They've done enough. Right. Good or bad. It's time to get out of the way. Go retire. You know, go to your public access television station and do your little cooking show. But seriously, there's a lot of other people that want to be in the, in the mix that you're stopping. Um, and and having to compete with them is, is it's not okay. It's not fun. Right, right, right. And well, speaking of competing with big people, I you got a lot of attention this year when mm-hmm. you know the Goya boycott happened for you know Adobo and Sazon, and um, which is obviously you know. Uh, good. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask how, you know, you do cook a lot of Puerto Rican food. You're selling Sazon and Adobo. Like, what is the role for you of Puerto Rican food in what you do? And I, you know, and I think what you do is so interesting because you really are incorporating it into your full vision of what your food should be and not being like, oh, hello, look, here's like a, I don't know, it's not sticky when you do it. And um, which is very refreshing because sometimes it it gets so forced 
into that kind of shtick um, thing. Uh, And, you know, so what, what role does it play in your cooking? You know, the Puerto Rican flavors and. Yeah. I just, I approach it as being realistic um, because there's a bunch of things that I don't have access to with my, the food that I cook here. Um, There's a lot of people that are from Puerto Rico that will come. And the first thing they do is talk shit about how it's not like authentic all the way down. And I'm like, well, first off, I don't know your fucking grandma. I don't know who you are. I don't know. We're different families. We all have different things we do. Cool. But I also am not going to spend, you know, 10 times the amount to bring like, you know, certain peppers and certain flavors and certain things. Cause then I'm going to end up charging you 10 times as much and you still want it to be Puerto Rico prices. Um, so we have to take yeah. that away, <laughs> you know, but I'm also in a city where I'm the only um, person doing Puerto Rican food and it's not even a full-fledged Puerto Rican restaurant um, because the numbers don't make it for that. People still don't give a shit. Uh, I would be better off if I said I was Cuban food and I did Puerto Rican food, honestly. Like that's what people would gravitate towards. And if I had, you know, Cuban press sandwich, people would like lose their shit. But that's not what I want to do. I want to be, you know, people to understand a little bit of what it is and then start to go like dig on their own and find out. Um, because then that allows them to broaden their horizons and realize that Puerto Rican cuisine isn't a one-all, one-size-fits-all thing either. Um, there's different styles. There's different ways you can make it. Um, and and there's seasonality towards it that a lot of people really don't understand. They're like, it's fucking fried food. And I'm like, it's not all that. You know, so it's it, there's a lot to it. But I'm also classically French trained. I went to culinary school. I've worked at really cool restaurants. Um, so for me, there's a touch that I want to bring to it that sometimes can be super high and fancy or not, you know, I can still charge $5 for this thing, or I can charge like a couple hundred for it, but I want to have that point of view where anything that comes out of here is Puerto Rican food, whether it's the black truffle pasta, that's still Puerto Rican food because it's a Puerto Rican guy making, you know, so I kind of want to like poke the bear always with people. Um, they're like, I've never tried Puerto Rican food. I was like, the fuck you haven't. You've tried my food, right? You've had it before. And they're like, oh yeah. And I was like, made by Puerto Rican. You know, so it's just kind of a fun, you know, tongue in cheek type thing. Um, But it it allows them to kind of go, this is very different. I like it. It tastes good. And then I'm like, well, just keep buying stuff, you know, like keep supporting and we'll be, we'll be cool. Yeah. Well, for you, is cooking a political act? Yeah. It always always has been. Um, You know, it's, it's political. It's also, you know, who gets to eat a lot of the things too, um, you know, with how much money someone has or doesn't. So there's always that thing that I'm trying to push, Um, you know, within my restaurant, we have stuff that's like $5 all the way to a few hundred dollars and everybody can still have something from us. Um, There's not a lot of places like that. You know, um, so I'm always trying to bring that on a level, but I'm also trying to force down different ideas. Um, so that way people just don't think, you know, if you buy some food from some place, they shouldn't be held accountable for the things they believe in. Like if they're Trump supporters, fuck them. Um, you know, or if they want to go on some like irrational, like Republican style strategy stuff, fuck them, you know, or if they just mimic it softly, um, and don't really say they're Republican or Trump supporters, but everything they do in their business <laughs> supports that, then I basically will tell people, hey, they're acting and they're part of the system. Whether they're saying it or not, you should really look at it like this. So it really becomes political at that point. There's a lot of stuff within Puerto Rican cuisine, too, that happens that way. Um, you know, every time somebody starts to talk about Puerto Rico, that's, you know, uh, white 
uh, or doesn't really know a lot is the first thing they send out, out of their fucking mouth is like, they should become a state. I can't wait to take them over. You know, and I'm like, that's not it's not your that's yeah. not your fucking place. Listen, listen, man, like I'm both my parents are Puerto Rican, uh, like I'm I'm legit check squared, you know, fine, cool. Uh, I got my little card, I guess. But even I don't say like whether they should be a state or not. It's not in my fucking business. I don't live on the island. It wouldn't affect me personally. And, you know, I don't have the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria ready to get fired up and take the place over again. Calm down. You know, so leave, leave the shit to them where they live. It's not like random guy in Idaho. Someone's going to go to the guy, random guy in Idaho and be like, what do you think we should do here? He's going to be like, fuck you. And has his little passing sign up with his gun and that's what's going to happen so it's always interesting to me like when stuff like that happens because you know me i make food okay cool and then what i'm not supposed to have an opinion about things um you know what it mm-hmm. sounds good jim that works in accounting at some fucking weird firm that you make like 50 dollars a year you have more of an opinion than i'm supposed to have fuck that shit you know so it's very different it's and and i think like seeing maybe with like Anthony Bourdain kind of be more vocal about stuff like that. People kind of like were ready to accept it more rather than just being like a Bobby Flay. Who's like, I make food, you know, <laughs> you know, no, I don't talk about anything. I just make food. Ta-da, you know, and you're like fucking fakes, you know, that, that's what it is. We're fucking fakes. And like, I don't, I don't think we need that right now. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank oh, you course. so much for taking the time. I'm sorry about cussing. It's my fault. Oh, it's fine with me.